The Witch Wave is brought to you by Vera Meat. This is pretty special because Vera Meat is one of my favorite jewelry designers, and she's doing an amazing deal for you guys. If you use offer code WITCH on her website, verameat.com, you get 40% off, 4-0, literally everything on the website. We're talking weird and wonderful accessories like gold tooth rings and a Zodiac nameplates, not to mention t-shirts and tote bags and so much more. Guys, you've got to head over to verameat.com. That's Vera, like the name, meat, like the food.com and use offer code WITCH for 40% off everything. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Zoo's Incense. They make exquisite hand-rolled incense cones with natural ingredients sourced from five continents, and they never use synthetics or charcoal. I've fallen nose over heels in love with their many magical blends, such as their Moon Mix, which is made from myrrh, sandalwood, and orris root. Go to zoosincense.com, that's Z as in zebra, O-U-Z as in zebra, incense.com, and use offer code WITCH to get free shipping on orders over $20. Let Zoo's Incense transform your space into a sanctuary. The world is filled with bewitching people. And you might be one, too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. I'm a bit of a comic book nerd. I loved Archie comics as a kid, and even went so far as to steal an issue from my very own best friend Jess in the fourth grade because it had a choice makeout scene between Archie and Betty. When I turned 14, a chick I met at art camp turned me onto Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and my life was forever changed. I learned that comics weren't just for kids, and that they could be sophisticated and artful, and bring to life the magic and mythology that has always enchanted me. Neil Gaiman and Sandman were a gateway that eventually led me to comics writers like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, and artists like Jill Thompson, Fiona Staples, J.H. Williams III, and Dame Darcy, to name just a few. It's a medium that I'm in constant awe of, whether it's stories from the big comics houses or crunchy little self-published books that you can find at places like MochaFest or TCAF or online. 
and it was a dream come true for me to have my own comic book come out recently in collaboration with the brilliant and breathtaking artists Tin Can Forest. Creating our own book, What is a Witch, was and continues to be one of the proudest experiences of my life, and the feeling of seeing my words suddenly made interdimensional and illuminated by Tin Can Forest's artwork felt like bearing witness to a reanimation spell. And shameless plug here, you can check out What is a Witch, as well as all of Tin Can Forest's other work over at tincanforest.com. But all of these different comics creators have taught me that comics are uniquely suited to be a consciousness-shifting device. The combination of word and image allows for our imaginations to be uniquely stimulated and to leave us more open to transformation. As Alan Moore stated in The Believer magazine, quote, The comics medium has some unusual features that do make it very different in that it's combining a verbal narrative with a visual one that allows for much richer possibilities of transmitting information. I was doing my best to use the possibilities of the comics medium to actually try to induce a kind of magical state in the reader." End quote. I imagine we'll be discussing Alan Moore much more in the future, but if you are interested in the relationship between art and magic, he writes and speaks about this beautifully and often, so be sure to check him out. There are also those, like comics writer Grant Morrison, who liken superheroes to deities in that both represent the divine aspects of humanity. While promoting his book, Super Gods, Morrison said the following to Wired.com, quote, It's not so much that they are new versions of the gods, because the gods were always just our eternal qualities— Superman possesses the qualities of the very best man we can imagine at any given time. In that sense, he's divine. Batman is representative of our dark subconscious, who nevertheless works for the good of humanity. You know, Flash, like Hermes before him, is a messenger god of communication and electricity, although he's more modern, so you'd probably have to add coffee and Red Bull. End quote. Wonder Woman is having a renaissance right now, and I might be biased, but at this moment in time, she seems like just what the witch doctor ordered. Her name, Diana, is shared with the Roman goddess of the moon, who in turn is a version of the Greek goddess Artemis, a lunar goddess of wildness, freedom, and feminine independence. As an Amazon warrior turned superhero, Diana inspires all of us to tap into our own strength, kindness, and divinity. On today's episode, I talked to Nicola Scott, the legendary comics artist who's worked on Wonder Woman Year One for DC Comics, and who is also the co-creator of Black Magic, which is a gorgeous new series from Image Comics about witchcraft. She and I discuss feminism, superheroes, witches, and the magical state that Nicola goes into when she's conjuring her own comics artwork. 
But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on the witch wire. Who is it? Witches. I got a lovely email from someone named Nada. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Nada. It's N-E-D-A. Nada writes, Your podcast and the people that I found through it is food for my soul. I listened to you from Belgrade, Serbia. You made my world turn around very much when you mentioned Tori Amos in one of your episodes. As a young girl, I didn't quite notice her, but right after the podcast, I began to listen to her songs, and it was just what I needed to find at that moment of my life. Thank you so much. Aw, Nada, I'm so glad to hear that. It was the Lindsay Mack tarot episode where she and I discussed our shared adoration for Tori. But I wanted to highlight this note because that experience that you're describing is one that's relevant for all of us as we're following our own winding paths. And I'm talking of that experience of something suddenly making itself known to you right when you really need it and when you're ready for it. Sometimes, yeah, it might be something you were even vaguely aware of in the past, but for whatever reason, now you're connecting with it. Paying attention to those signs is what I call following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. And it's one of my very favorite parts of being a human. That sensation of an artist or a book or a turn of phrase or a symbol suddenly making itself known to you and bells going off in your head because you know that you're meant to pay attention to it and learn from it and let it lead you further down your path. The great mother goddess RuPaul calls that listening to the stage directions that the universe is giving you. It's a call you should always answer and a message you can always trust because it's here to teach you something and I believe connect you to purpose, spirit, and love. So Nada, thank you so much for sharing this, and I hope Tori's songs guide you to musical and magical new places. This theme also connects to today's guest, Nicola Scott. In our conversation, she tells the story of answering her own call from the universe, which caused her to completely change her career and ultimately become one of the world's most beloved comics artists who's worked on Wonder Woman, amongst many others. She's also the co-creator of Black Magic, which is an occult noir story about a homicide detective who is also a witch. And I'm happy to go on record as saying that it is one of the most gorgeous comics ever created. In addition to all that, Nicola has done art for the most iconic characters in the DC universe, including Superman and Teen Titans and so many more. Nicola Skyped into the show all the way from Sydney, and it was a great honor to get to speak with her. Nicola Scott, I am so honored to have you on The Witch Wave. Welcome. Oh, Pam, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. That's the best. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I could just fangirl about you all day long. 
But I actually do have questions for you so our listeners don't have to drown in my saccharine-ness too, too much. Um, (laughs) But I I do want to say you are just the fucking best and it is such a dream come true to get to talk to you so thank you again oh well thank you because that that's some some crazy compliments i'll take that i'll take it (laughs) receive receive so you are i mean it's it's almost difficult to know where to begin with you because you are such a legend you've worked on the artwork for such legendary comic books and comic properties over the years and you've also gone on to create your own with the incredible series black magic which you do with writer greg rucka so why don't we just start with the assumption that a lot of listeners might not be big comic book folks themselves sure um so If you wouldn't mind just talking about, you know, you're obviously an exceptionally gifted artist. I imagine you could have gone in a lot of different directions. What was it about comic books in particular that attracted you in the first place? Right. (laughs) Well, what attracted me about comics in the first place was in my satin return when everything was falling down and I needed to work out what the hell I was going to do with the rest of my life and drawing was something that I could do. It occurred to me one morning when I posed the question to myself again, you know, what do I want to do? You know, if I had to draw all day, every day, what do I want to draw? I had one of those Oprah light bulb moments where I was like, oh, I wish I could just draw Wonder Woman because she's a character that I grew up on. She was my first superhero. Mm. And I've always loved her and she's sort of slotted into how I see my family because I come from a big family of almost all girls you know there are no boys born into the family the only boys in the family are the ones that marry in to help create more girls and (laughs) uh, you know a third of the girls in my family are gay so that's you know that brings in more women and it's it's a very female family but we're definitely the dominant species and so Wonder Woman sort of fit into that I related to her for that but I've also I also see so much paganness in her and and while I didn't grow up pagan, I didn't grow up with any sort of spiritual discipline. She sort of spoke quite closely to the Greek myths that I fell in love with and used to read a lot about when I was a kid. And in the process of trying to work out what I was going to do with the rest of my life, the idea of being paid to draw Wonder Woman is where the idea of comic books came from because I hadn't grown up with comics. Mm. They, they just weren't a big thing in Australia in the 70s. I think they sort of started to become a bit of a thing in the 80s. And there were definitely comics around, you know, The Phantom is a big seller here. And anytime I would see a comic when I was a kid, it would have Thor or the Hulk in it. And this is, you know, way pre-Marvel Studios. So I didn't know who these characters were and I didn't care. You know, they just looked like scary hulking boy characters that just didn't interest me at all. Right. So comics were just in no way on my radar. And I think they started to become a little closer to my radar during the 80s and the 90s because I could draw and I liked superheroes, kind of because of Wonder Woman and the Super Friends and the Isis and Shazam Hour and and Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, all these sort of crazy old 70s shows. Mm. That, you know, when I started having more boys in my circle and some of them were geeky and were into comics, But even still, even if I saw Wonder Woman in a comic, she'd be surrounded by all of these other characters that I didn't know. And I just found it impenetrable. 
So it wasn't until the day I decided I was going to draw comics for a living that I was like, okay, I better find out what comics is all about. Mm. And so, so can we dig into that yeah. for a second? So you decided you wanted to draw comics before you were really a big fan of them. It was more the iconography of Wonder Woman that attracted you. Yeah. Is that right? Well, yes, I, I loved Wonder Woman. I never grew out of her. Anytime I was sitting on the phone, you know, this is back in the day when we only had landlines. Any time I was sitting by the phone where there's always a pad and, and pen, I just start drawing faces. I was always drawing faces. And every time I finished a face, I'd whack a Wonder Woman tiara on it and it would be done. And I never grew out of that. <laughs> and yeah, it, it really came about because it was like, I want to be paid to draw Wonder Woman. That would be my ideal. Oh my God, that is actually a job that exists somewhere in the world someone has that job I want that job it was so clear it was like a lightning rod it just it hit me and straight away it was like I knew for a fact that that's what I was going to do with the rest of my life awesome yeah within 20 minutes I was in a comic book store buying up anything that I liked the art of any characters that I knew anything that had Wonder Woman on it and I started to educate myself and you know, this is coming from a 20-something, you know, going through my 20s, a little bit wishy-washy. I was an actor. That was where all my training was. Oh, for film or stage? Stage primarily. But I had been doing a lot of commercials in the 90s in Australia. I sort of advertised a lot of alcohol and a lot of ads, and ads aren't really acting. And that was kind of where my disillusionment with that was coming from. And I needed to, I needed to find something else because acting just wasn't... I was finding it wasn't the answer. But then... I'd been approaching it in a very wishy-washy way. And I'd had a pretty flaky, very fun 20-something decade. But once that was over, I needed to, I needed direction. And I had never been ambitious or motivated in a very pinpoint accurate way before. And this was the first time. And it happened instantly. Do you remember a moment in particular where you were like, Wonder Woman is calling me or it whatever. Was, it was or... that moment. I, it was literally, it was a Sunday morning. It was about 10.30 in the morning. I was having a cup of tea and a slice of toast. And I was pondering the question because I've been considering for about 18 months by this stage, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I was deep in my satin return. I think I was like 29 or just turned 29. And, and I should interject for listeners who might not be familiar with that term. So some folks believe that your Saturn return happens around its age 28 or so. Yeah. And that's when a, a big reassessment of one's life can happen. Yeah. Um, a new direction can be set. Sometimes it feels very tumultuous because you have to shed old selves to become your new self. So it sounds like that was happening with you. That's exactly what happened. I was deep in knowing that I needed to find an answer. And literally while I'm sitting there having my breakfast and contemplating the question yet again, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I just approached the question in a different way. I posed it to myself and I remember the thought process. It was like, if I have to do the same thing all day, every day, because that's what a job is, what do I want to do? What do I want to draw? And straight away in my head, I was like, oh man, I wish I could just draw Wonder Woman every day. And instantly, that was it. That was it. That was the signpost and that was the lightning rod. And I was just like, oh my God, that's a job that exists because Wonder Woman has a comic book that comes out pretty regularly, I imagine. And 
someone has to draw that and that's their job. They get paid to draw Wonder Woman. I'm just going to do that. Fuck yes. And I didn't know anything about it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a girl, wrong gender, in Australia, wrong country, with no history of reading comic books, let alone knowing anything about the art of them. So you weren't reading the Wonder Woman series yet? No. It was just no, her, I had, the image of her. Yeah. By this stage, I had come across a few comic books and I had been interested in them and I had liked the art in them, but I'd never sort of really seen myself as working in that business. It was just, it was too far removed from where I was. Sure. You know, occasionally I'd see a picture in, you know, one of the three books that I had seen by this stage. I'd see a picture in one of those books and I'd think, oh, that's a great picture. I should draw something like that. Yep. But it was nothing about the storytelling. It was nothing about the you know, I just didn't know anything about them. And 20 minutes later, I was in a comic book store starting my education. Amazing. And it was just straight away, I was like a bullet out of a gun. I was like, Carol, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. I know that I don't know anything. I was smart enough to know that I didn't know anything. And I think that was just an age, an age thing. You know, I was mature enough. And so I accepted that I'm going to start with some really basic dumb questions and I'm going to be that person that people criticize for not having their geek cred and I didn't know what geek cred was you know that was not a term that had been coined yet or or you know was in development and I, I started finding my people meant to find each other so I'm gonna do a spoiler alert for folks sure Nicola then fast forward you got to draw Wonder Woman. I did. <laughs> I mean, holy fuck. Yeah. So I know it would probably be a very long but very fascinating story to hear how you got from not knowing much about her to getting to draw her. But I'd love to get to that point. Obviously, you've had many, many other <laughs> comics that you worked on. I mean, we can shout out Birds of Prey, Secret Six... Um, I believe you did a little bit of work on Star Wars and Superman. And I mean, you've really just gotten to draw absolute legends before you got to Wonder Woman. But you eventually got to her. And did you feel that all of that work was kind of training you for Wonder Woman and preparing you for Wonder Woman? Or is that too simplistic? I think that's absolutely true because... I'd been working at DC Comics, which is the company that owns Wonder Woman, for a good 10 plus years prior to me actually working on the book. And so, you know, I was learning on the fly. By the time I got my job at DC Comics, I was still kind of new, but super ambitious and, and on a steep learning curve. And because most of the writers that I've worked with knew that I loved Wonder Woman, they'd introduce her into the story somewhere. So, you know, I, I got to draw her in bits and pieces. And there were times when I was offered her book, but I turned it down because the writer wasn't right or the story that they wanted to tell, I just didn't feel like was the story I wanted to tell. Mm. And with every sort of passing year, whenever I was sort of interviewed by Comics Press, the question that you're always asked is, you know, what's your dream project? And I would always say Wonder Woman. And the further into the industry I got and the more experienced I got and the more my audience grew and the more confident I became in my position and my ability and my, you know, my sense of self, 
the more my dream job refined to, I want to work on Wonder Woman, I want to work on a Wonder Woman origin story, and eventually I got it down to, I really want to work on a Wonder Woman origin story with Greg Rucker. Uh. And that specific criteria sort of made it so unlikely to happen that I'd really let the idea go and let it sort of be this ephemeral thing that might come back to me in about 10 years. And then out of nowhere, it came up. You know what, though, Nicola? When I'm hearing you talk... Of course, I look at everything through a magical lens, and I'm like, sure. the more specific you are and the brighter and more crisp your vision is that you're putting into a magical working, and that's what it sounds like this is for you. I mean, it's, it's a... Completely. Uh, you know, the, the more likely it's going to manifest. So this feels like an absolute spell that you've been casting and crafting for many, many years. It did feel like that. Certainly once it had happened and once we were doing, you know, I've been quite aware that while I don't have a magical practice because I I didn't grow up with sort of a spiritual discipline. So I'm lacking the discipline of sort of having ritual be part of my routine but part of my sort of daily routine let me Um, just interject and say the idea of you lacking in discipline is hilarious well no i do (laughs) but i I hear what you're saying of course of course i do have discipline and i i've been aware certainly through i feel like the first time i became aware that i was capable of manifesting was sometime in my 20s because i I have managed to, at most sort of primary stages of my life, when I look back on, on the certain blocks of my life, I've known that I, I can achieve the picture that I want. And certainly with Wonder Woman, I knew that the only way to get what I want was to not accept what I don't want. Mm. So it became very easy to sort of know when I saw it and also know when it's not there. So when it was offered to me and it wasn't there, it was still very emotionally challenging to find myself offered Wonder Woman and then say no. Ugh, I can't even imagine. And and sort of also keep a good relationship with the with the boss because, you know, when I was offered the one that I said no to, it came from, you know, the the, the big boss at the company. Mm. And and it was sort of very graciously gifted to me. And I was like, thank you, but no, is that okay? Um, And when I explained myself, they were sort of like, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. And it actually sort of, you know, I think it helped them respect me and and my sort of personal integrity and awareness even more. And so when the right offer came down the line, I was at a stage in my career where I felt like I had earned the job that I wanted and it came, it literally came like that. Mm. It just happened out of nowhere. And it was not just here are the ingredients that you wanted, an origin story written by Greg Rucker, who is a, a long friend of mine. He and I have been friends for well over 10 years. And he is a huge Wonder Woman fan, like I'm a Wonder Woman fan. And we have talked Wonder Woman nonstop. Every conversation that we've ever had somehow gets related to Wonder Woman Mm. over the last decade. And when this job happened, it happened all of a sudden, and we had to start straight away. And we were lucky that we had this sort of 10 years of understanding each other 
So we already knew that we were on board with each other's ideas. I knew that I could trust everything that he would write and he knew that he could trust everything that I would draw. And we just sort of got to start this project, you know, exactly how we wanted to do it. And around this sort of manifestation came all of these other things that we weren't necessarily anticipating. Like it happened in her 75th anniversary year. It happened in the lead up to her film being made. It happened where the company was in a position where they said, we would like you to handle Wonder Woman and we will just step back and facilitate all the things that you want to do, which is literally how it was presented to us. It was like, we know how important this moment is and we trust you guys to know what to do. So you tell us what you want to do and we will help you do it. And a big company like that isn't often putting creators in that kind of position. They usually they usually have an agenda for all of their primary characters and their only agenda for Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary was that it had to be special and they really had to not screw it up. And Wonder Woman is, can be a bit of a tricky character with, with a sort of very male-heavy creative pool from which superhero mainstream comics usually pulls from. Wonder Woman is often a character that can be slightly misinterpreted. Sure. And that that can sort of make a dilution of the power of who she is. And this time they knew that they couldn't afford to get it wrong. And so they came to the people that they trusted the most to get it right. And how nice is that as a compliment that they came to Greg and I? Oh, well, so well deserved. I mean, and the story I had no idea about all of the times you turned them down. I just know that when this came across your transom and when I learned of it I was like yes that's perfect (laughs) that's so awesome what a thrilling thrilling tale can you talk about what is it about Wonder Woman that you think is important and that was crucial for you and Greg Rucka to bring to her story sure I feel like one of the most important aspects of her as a feminist character which is where I see her as an individual, where, where she kind of stands alone, is that she is this incredibly powerful presence. It's not just that she's physically powerful and it's not just that she's, you know, beautiful. It's this level of self-assuredness and confidence in her femininity and her importance in her, in her womanhood, her... her sense of her womanhood because of where she comes from her, her sort of Amazon nation and that she is this incredibly powerful centuries trained warrior so there is that 100% confidence and, and self-assuredness but it's tempered by the fact that she is incredibly compassionate that she's not Xena which is kind of where she's been steered since Xena came around you know, Xena was a very 90s version of Wonder Woman. You know, they took the idea of Wonder Woman and made her a, a very aggressive, kick-ass character because that was the fashion. Mm. And Xena was amazing. And, you know, I love Xena. But when Wonder Woman started becoming like Xena, it was like, oh, that's not who Wonder Woman is. That's who Xena is. Xena's angry. And Wonder Woman's just not. Wonder Woman is calm and wise and... And her compassion 
for even the worst of humanity and the worst traits of humanity is what separates her from pretty much everybody. She's just really understanding. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that she is thousands of years old and she has thousands of years of wisdom, which, you know, has calmed her. But she's also part of, it's built into her as a character is that she is the beacon of truth. You know, the fact that she holds the lasso that compels not just people to say the truth, but it's the core of what is true, that you can't bullshit yourself. You can't muddy your own waters with sort of mental health concerns because you are compelled to see and understand the truth in a situation. And sometimes that truth is understanding how muddy and messy the human condition is. That's what really uh, cuts through to the compassion. Yeah, it's it's really about getting past ego, isn't it? And getting past what separates us. Completely. And, you know, she is very spiritual in that regard. She's the hero that we need now, you know? Yeah. And she comes from a pagan society. You know, it's always been important to me. And it's, it's sort of, it gets touched on in the comics here and there. This is another reason why she's sort of appealed to me the older I got is that she comes from a very sort of spiritual society that has its religious traditions and and rituals. And, you know, I've always sort of seen her in that sort of light. You know, I went through a good 15 years where prior to sort of drawing her at the company where I had to sort of draw her the company way, I would draw a circle around the star on her tiara because I wanted it to be like a pentagram. It was her protection symbol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's... She hasn't ever had space for ego. She's never needed ego. And that, that I feel, is what makes her so distinctly herself. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Nicola, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You've heard me gush about Mithras candles many times before, and they love you guys so much that they're now offering free shipping if you use offer code WITCH at their website, MithrasCandle.com. You know, 2,000 years ago in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras candles. They're handmade from the purest golden cappings beeswax, and with that natural, subtle honey and floral scent, Mithras candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. So go to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for free shipping today. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. We're here talking with Nicola Scott. So Nicola, we were just talking about Wonder Woman as a character and the ideals and values that she holds. And you were starting to talk about the design of her. I'd love to hear a little more about that. How did you approach the new way in which you wanted to interpret her visually? Well, when it came to actually working on her in the series, by this stage, you know, I had quite a lot of experience in the business 
and I had gone through my own sort of creative phases of different ways of interpreting her and it became about following the company mandate but making sure plenty of my own flavor was in there and you know at the time the company was like the outfit in the movie is kind of the direction that everyone's going these days so just draw the movie costume to which I was like that's pretty fine because the movie costume is in part based on a Wonder Woman design that I created a few years ago about five or six years ago oh that's awesome yeah so it's it's already sort of incorporating stuff that I have been trying to push into Wonder Woman like her skirt as opposed to the pants like I've always been a a big fan of the star spangled pants I do love them but I've kind of been pushing for a stylized battle skirt for for quite a while and when I saw the film design I was just like oh that's beautiful that's perfect I love it it's a sort of halfway point between the two nice and so when they said you know just draw the movie version I was like okay can I comics it up a little bit because I had already in in sort of discussing the project with Greg I'd already decided in my mind how I wanted to approach the art. You know, if if we had been given this project five years earlier, I might have made a more adult, darker, um, slightly more character-driven, subtle version of the story. But because it was happening in her 75th anniversary, because by this stage there was quite a lot of Wonder Woman content coming out, And because the film was on its way, I'd already thought, okay, now I want it to be a little more all ages appropriate. I want it to be a little brighter. You know, that part of the story was that we were making her quite a bit younger because this would be her very first entry into into mankind. So she was going to be about, you know, even though she's thousands of years old, she's going to have aged out to about 19 Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So she was young visually. And so it made me approach the art in a, in a very different way. And so I wanted it to be brighter and a lot less shadow, a lot less cross-hatching in the art. And that in itself sort of feeds into the design. I knew that I didn't want the sort of muted movie colours. I wanted brighter blues and brighter reds and shinier golds for her outfit. And that then feeds into, you know, how you approach every other character and how you approach the setting and you know, the mood that you're setting, I wanted Paradise Island to seem very romantic and soft and, you know, like it, it was bathed in magic hour lighting all the yes. time. Yes, it is stunning what you've drawn, Nicola. It really is breathtaking. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And and that it's allowed for sort of cuter, sillier concepts. Like, you know, it, it was very important to me and this is one of the areas on Wonder Woman where Greg and I don't necessarily agree, is that I love the invisible jet, even though it's ridiculous. <laughs> and she's, you know, she's a character that can fly. You know, what what does she need an invisible jet for? And it kind of looks really ridiculous and all that kind of stuff. But we had already decided that on, on the island she doesn't have her powers yet. They haven't quite kicked in mm. because part of her comics origin, which they don't get to in the film because they didn't have the time for it, is that she has to compete for the role. And if she's superpowered and she's competing, then she's cheating. Mm, true. And so we wanted her to win on her own merits. And so she wasn't powered, so it's like, so she can't fly off the island. And she's in a magic realm, so she can't really boat off the island unless we want to sort of spend a whole lot of time explaining that, which the movie actually does incredibly well. 
And so I, I, I pitched him my idea for the invisible jet, why it's there, how it's there, and why we don't need it anymore afterwards. And, you know, I won him over, and so we got to put that in. And that's that's a sort of fun, silly concept that I don't know that I could have sold if we did a more serious take. Totally. And at one point in the story where they're using the lasso to translate for each other, there's a, a group of people... Uh, including Etta and Steve Trevor and another character. They're sitting around a table and they, they realise that they can understand each other and understand it, each other deeply when they're all holding the lasso. So they're sitting in a circle or holding the lasso and revealing their truths to each other, which is a, a really sort of beautiful, intimate moment that Greg wrote in. And I said to him when I was drawing it, because Steve is meant to be looking at her lovingly and we should know it. And I was like, I want to draw love hearts around his head like it's an anime. And he was like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. Do it. And I was like, I'm going to. I'm going to. Hell yes. And I couldn't have been able to do that if it was five years ago and I wanted to draw something more serious. You can't suddenly add, you know, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, so we got to have fun. Exactly. So I want to get to Steve Trevor. And I want to talk about the male gaze and the female gaze in general and your approach to it, because I know it's something that's very close to your heart. (laughs) Sure. So for those who aren't familiar with Wonder Woman, hopefully everyone's seen the film by now. It's exquisite, but you've got to read Greg and Nicola's take on her. But Steve Trevor, to my mind, is such an antidote to toxic masculinity. Yeah. Because he's he's beefy and he's hot and he's masculine and all of that, but he's always boosting her signal, he's giving her credit, he is often rescued by her and dragged around by her in the sky. And Nicola, I can't help but notice that I think he is shirtless at least 50% of the time, if not more, in your rendition of him. <laughs> in every issue. Yes. In every issue. we, we it, it did become a running joke for us. It was like, okay, so we're doing this and we're doing that, you know, as we plot out each issue. And most importantly, how are we getting Steve's shirt off? Um, <laughs> and it was, it was partly because... You know, I, I love Wonder Woman's outfit and I don't have any problem with her exposing the skin that she exposes. It's only when she's drawn by someone who interprets all of that in an oversexed way and gives her uh, an unnatural pose for the character to be in that I have a problem with how she's depicted. It's got nothing to do with the, the concept of her costume. But that said, I've, I've sort of found it as part of my agenda w- within the industry, within mainstream comics, because I'm one of the few female artists in sort of superior comics. There are a lot more of us now than there were 10 years ago. But it's always sort of been part of my agenda to sexualize the men in appropriate but sort of slightly gratuitous ways. (laughs) Um, In the way, you know, to sort of reflect how women have been portrayed. Mm -hmm. And Steve Trevor is such a sort of beautiful character. He has been possibly the the worst served supporting character of a big deal primary character out of all of them, you know, Lois Lane has had her ups and downs, but she's had books of her own. She's generally had agency and profile and status. And 
you know, Robin has always had so much status and Alfred the butler gets more respect than Steve Trevor has over the decades. And for the last 20 years or so, Steve Trevor has been a slightly toxic masculine character, a, a lovable douchebag. <laughs> we all know a couple of those. Yeah. And we all, you know, Greg and I decided that we didn't want that for Steve. We wanted Steve to be worthy of Diana's affection and attraction. And we wanted him to just be a really nice, modern guy. And so the creating of him was really kind of sweet and really lovely. And it needs to sort of have a sexiness and a romance, their story together needed to have a sort of subtle and innocent sex appeal. And so that was essentially how we approach approach both characters. That's how I approach both characters. Yep. And he was just sort of comfortable in his skin. So, Nicola, we've been talking a lot about you reinterpreting these existing characters but you have recently become the co-creator of a brand new story, Black Magic, which is one of my favorite series. I'm going to call it one of my all-time favorite series, even though it's still so new. Thank you. Sure. And that's also with uh, writer Greg Rucka. And I'm just going to give a quick synopsis of Black Magic just to catch folks up. And, and everybody, you, you just if you like this podcast, you are going to love Black Magic. It's about a homicide detective named Rowan Black, who also happens to be a witch, although most of her police colleagues don't quite know that about her. And the series begins rather dramatically. There's a hostage situation. And the criminal has requested Rowan by name to deal with this situation. And hopefully this isn't giving too much away. It happens right at the top of the book. Rowan has no choice but to use her magic to protect herself. And as the series continues, it becomes clear that this was just the tip of the iceberg and that there is a much more widespread, nefarious, supernatural plan that she has to figure out and that she has to fight and that she has to also identify her own history in and her own part in. So hopefully that's not too much spoilage. Is is there anything you'd like to add to that, Nicola? No, that sounds about right. I love it. (laughs) Right on. I should just note that, you know, I'm a big comics person, not quite from the superhero angle. Um, I grew up reading Vertigo comics, so Sandman was my sacred text, and uh, Promethea, Alan Moore, and J.H. Williams III's incredible uh, series. Beautiful. Gorgeous, gorgeous. And so I'm always looking for comics that deal with magic in beautiful and intelligent and compelling ways and they're actually really hard to find yeah i bug my local comics dude all the time like is anything new come in and they know what i'm looking for and there's really not that much out there and there hadn't been for a long time i mean little blips here and there and certainly some cool stuff happening in indie comics so when black magic came onto the scene 
I, I just, I can't even tell you how happy I was and how excited I was. So thank you guys so much for putting this out there. And, you know, let's just start at the top. First off, this is a, a series that you and Greg co-created. You are the co-owners of it as it's out on Image Comics. And, and that's the model I understand for Image. Okay. So what made you guys decide that you wanted to tell a story about a witch police detective? Well, it was kind of instigated by Greg. You know, he is often writing about cops or soldiers or spies that tends to be his go-to and they're usually complicated women who are his lead characters and he was telling me about this story that he had mulling around in his head about a, a cop that happened to be a witch and as soon as he said that I just sort of lit up because witches are my you know occult genre of choice yes. and and I, I, you know, it's it's where a lot of my instinctual passion lies. You know, I've been studying witches and I've got all kinds of, I've got loads of books and loads of paraphernalia. I just don't practice, but I'm deeply invested in. And so when he sort of mentioned this idea, I was just like, oh, me, 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 me. I want to do this. I want to do this. And it was a good five years later before, you know, the window of opportunity presented itself. And from there, it became the most collaborative experience I've ever had. You know, Greg's generally a pretty collaborative writer anyway, but he and I are really good at clicking with each other. My, my husband refers to us as brother and sister because we can bicker a lot, but we're generally on the same page about, you know, all the things. And we love surprising each other and he sort of wrote his first couple of scripts without a lot of discussion but then we had loads of discussion and through that I decided that I wanted it to be a black and white book and that I sort of described to him how I wanted to approach the magic because it was very important to me when he said at the, at the top you know it's a book that is about witches I was like yeah, what kind of witches? Because I don't want a Harry Potter style witch book. I want something that's a little more earthy, a little more steeped in what actual witches practice. And he was like, yes, yes, yes. So he's a deep researcher and I was already had my own little library going. And so it was nice to know that we we're already on the same page. But when it came to creating the look of it and the tone of the book, we had come up with this idea of sort of making it a cult noir and that sort of gave us a starting point so it would have an old-fashioned feel to it and I wanted it to be black and white and I wanted it to be very textural and very tactile so I decided that I would paint the whole book which made it a much longer process than if I was just drawing it mm. because most of the time other than the line work even if it's a, a, a sort of a tonal book most of that tonal work is done digitally, but I didn't, you know, I'm not terribly digitally skilled. And I just didn't want that to be the look of the book. I wanted it to feel a little bit more like an artifact. So, you know, I get out my brushes and my French curves and my, <laughs> my pencils and my erasers. And I've been drawing and painting this book and it has moments of color 
that indicate the magic and I the way I sort of sold the idea to him was you know magic is something that the witches can see and as the audience it's something that we can see but it's not something that anyone else can see so there will be moments of color happening in front of a character that doesn't necessarily see it happening they can't see the color we can and so it's involving the reader in the witch's perspective and it's become one of the most oh look joyful processes because it is the practical side of working in comics is that it's a lot of work it tends to be eight to ten hours a day seven days a week Mm. so it's it's a lot of sitting at the desk and just using your trade you know you can't be too artistically flary all the time because otherwise you just won't get anywhere so it, it becomes work so with comics generally being so labor intensive it's even more so because I'm painting it so I've not quite doubled the amount of time that it would take me to do an issue but it's not too far off Mm. Um, but in that process and in the results I feel it and I see it because I feel like I'm crafting a lot more than I do when I'm just drawing and because it's something that we own and we create from scratch, anyone that sort of does create our own content on a regular basis knows this. But for someone like myself who's come from working on company-owned big deal characters that have their own joy and magic when you're, when you're getting the opportunities to participate in these decades-long legacies, Being able to sort of carve something from scratch and being involved in every minutia of the decision-making and being so sort of practically and artistically invested in the conceiving, it feels incredibly overwhelming in the manifesting of the, of the pages. Uh, it, for, for me, I've sort of referred to it as being in communion with my mum, uh, who passed away about eight years ago. Mm. And Rowan looks a bit like my mum looked in the 70s, and her attitude is a little similar <laughs> to my mother's attitude. And whenever we're in Rowan's home in particular, her house is like a fantastical, rambling, bigger version of the house I grew up in. And almost everything in the house is something that we owned or it's a memory of something that we owned or it's something that I can literally point at. That's at my aunt's place. That's now at my dad's place by the beach. That, you know, all all the pieces of art on, on the walls. You know, my mother was an artist, which is where, you know, my artistic training started. Mm. And she taught me how to paint. So working on subject matter that is very nostalgic for me in terms of what I'm putting down on the page, plus I'm being able to paint it, which is the skill that my mother taught me. I feel like I'm in communion with my mum whenever I'm working on the book, especially when I'm doing issues or scenes that take place in her home, because that's my my memories of my mum sort of coming out, even to the point where, and one of my favorite things in art generally is when there is a painting of a room, an internal space, and on the wall is another painting. Yes. And I love looking at the paintings in paintings. <laughs> and every time we're in Rowan's home, 
in every room, they're just sort of covered in artwork. Yes. And a lot of it is artwork that I have in my home that was my mother's artwork. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah. You're giving me such chills, Nicola. I can't even tell you. That's well, so this beautiful. Is sort of, this is part of why I don't mind committing so much time to a project that is, you know, I'm not getting paid nearly enough to do the amount of time that I'm spending on it to do, but it's feeding me in a way that is incredibly valuable that I, I, I feel the enrichment all day, every day. Oh, that's gorgeous. That's so gorgeous. And when you were talking about paintings of paintings, another thing I love, especially in comics, are drawings of books. I love seeing both imaginary books and real books and that kind of slide their way in and and little, you know, the postcards and, and a lot of the other ephemera that you have drawn is so beautiful. I'm thinking even about like the bulletin board at the New Age shop yeah. in one of the earliest issues. And it just seems like you're having such fun and the loving detail that you're adding to everything really comes through. Well, creating that magical spaces and sort of rich living environments or, you know, one of my favorite things is creating the space in which the scene takes place. During my theater training, you know, I did a lot of, because you're wearing many hats, I did a lot of costume design and construction and I did a lot of production design and set design. And so I'm getting to use those skills to create these three-dimensional spaces that the space that Rowan lives in and the space that Alex, her best friend, who's also a witch, lives in and the space that Era, their sort of enemy, the, the space that they exist in, or every time I get to create a new room or a new sort of area of the house, I feel like I've mapped out most of downstairs. But Rowan's living room and then Rowan's library was a sort of really fun space to create and... Mm. Her kitchen, you know, through a few issues, you can see all four walls and corners of this kitchen space. It's, it's, you know, it needs to sort of be the space that it is, but it also needs to speak of the characters that exist in it. And, you know, Rowan's family home, it has books and art everywhere. And there was a scene where Alex, in treating her wounds from a magical assault, she has a it's just a one-page scene in her bathroom and she also lives in this big beautiful old house and I decided that the visual theme that I would go for in the styling of her interiors is a little more Art Nouveau than Victorian Mm -hmm. and so creating this Art Nouveau bathroom for her (laughs) to create her sort of magical healing space was just you know anytime I'm creating these new spaces I'm I'm sort of creating interior porn for myself, <laughs> but seeing it through a magical lens, you know, it's I'm trying to give a magical quality to everyday objects as well as introduce, you know, in that scene she has a mortar and pestle and it's like, okay, Alex has been around for a really long time. She'd have a really beautiful mortar and pestle. What's her mortar and pestle going to look like? As opposed to Rowan's mortar and pestle in the kitchen when she does a spell on the fly and she pulls, you know, cooking herbs out of the cupboard. You know, she's got a marble mortar and pestle, but she's got one that you buy from any kitchenware store. Yeah. Because Rowan, through her character, is a little more fly-by-the-seat-of-her-pants kind of girl. You know, she's 
She's got little fast food chain salt packets in her drawer and in her pocket. And she rides a motorcycle. She rides a motorcycle. She's, she's got a flip knife on her. She's got the tools kind of on her person, which was part of the design from the very beginning. You know, as Greg and I talked about her, we would talk about, you know, uh, she's a more practical person. She's not as invested in the ritual artifacts of it like Alex might be. I mean, even in the beginning, when we first are introduced to Rowan, she's in ceremony, they're calling Circle uh, to do a ritual, and her cell phone goes off. And I was just like, this is perfect. You immediately get the character, you get the time and the place, uh, because, you know, when the book begins, it's like, what era are we even? And yeah. And like, oh, there we go. And and it's also funny as hell, I just have to say, as someone who is a practitioner, that kind of shit happens all the time. Right. <laughs> it's oh, like, you know, you're like trying to be between worlds and then inevitably, yeah, like someone gets a text yeah. and all the other witches get a little pissy and <laughs> it's just the way of yeah. it. I love yeah, it. You've broken the magic. Yep. I wanted her to have all of her accoutrement in her pockets and it be incidental everyday item. And the one thing that I was trying to sort of sneak onto her was a pentagram. And eventually I said to Greg, is there any precedent in the States for police to have a sheriff-style badge, like a five-point star in a circle badge? And straight away he was like, oh, my God, that's a really good idea. And so we started Googling, you know, five-point star police badges as opposed to sheriff badges hilariously they have them in salem massachusetts (gasps) perfect from what i from what we we understood so it's like okay precedent said she's now got a pentagram on her person and so that became our police shield which you know pops up on everybody everybody's wearing them but in one scene you know we actually show rowan consecrating it you know it's been used in a magical way so she needs to sort of cleanse it and and reconsecrate it. And she's doing the same with her gun because she has used her gun in a magical way that she's sort of, you know, cleaning it, polishing it, reconsecrating it and all the bullets because, you know, on occasion she needs to call on them in non-street level, you know, regular police ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the opposite for Alex, that she has all this beautiful stuff to the point where she has a stone circle in her garden. And, you know, she doesn't hide it so much. Yeah, I love all of that design work that you've put in. And one of my favorite things, and I'm 99% sure this is an interpretation of yours, but correct me if it's a quote of something else. The sigil, Mm. the main symbol of the book, and Rowan has a tattoo of this on her forearm, it reminds me of, well, I should describe it, It's like the Venus symbol, but then there are three crescent moons in different directions, and then a a dot in the middle, which reminds me of the sun. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a bit of John Dee's hieroglyphic monad, which is a a famous sigil that the uh, magician John Dee created. And, you know, certainly kind of a a conflation of of a lot of planetary symbols and the triple goddess symbols. Was that a symbol that you invented yourself? Yeah. So it was important to me, you know, when you're starting a new series, and it's something that I'm very conscious of, is 
iconography. You've got to create strong iconography. And so we knew that she would have tattoos, but drawing tattoos constantly on a figure can be problematic because you're drawing a character five panels a page for 22 pages an issue for, you know, however many issues you do. And so doing tattoos can be very fiddly work because sometimes you zoom in and sometimes you zoom out. So Mm. I knew I needed something graphic. What I was looking for was a sigil. And so I started doing a lot of sigil research and I wanted it to be something original because partly I wanted it to represent Rowan, but it had to be recognisable as a pagan sigil to people who know their pagan sigils. And it's a mixture of a number of different elements. And it's essentially what it came down to was it's the feminine and masculine of the heavens the sky and the earth so you can see the goddess symbol in there Mm -hmm. you can see the horned god symbol in there you can see the moon you can see the sun because of the dot and the male and female sigil yep and so they're they're all there because her history spans all of these things the further into the book you get the more lives you realize she's had she's got pretty good recall of the you know many hundreds of lives she's had over the last 6,000 years and that sort of finding something that would define her in one symbol and so in the in the sort of crafting of that when I put all these different elements together overlap them over each other and join them together and found a way to construct it that I found visually pleasing. I sort of introduced that to Greg and to Eric Troutman, who's our graphic designer, who puts the books together once all the art is done and scripting is done. That sort of became one of our key design elements. So we we use that on everything. It's stamped on everything now. Yeah. It's Rowan's sigil. It's exquisite and it's so iconic. And I'm guessing you get photographs from people who have it tattooed on their bodies. Because, we, do. I mean, we do. Yeah. Like I'm tempted to do it. I don't have any tattoos for a number of reasons but if I were to get one that would be on my short list it is so powerful thank you yeah I don't have any tattoos either my husband's got a bunch I don't have (laughs) any but I've never been against them I just can't think of anything that I want to stamp on my body but as soon as I designed that it was like I want that that's that's what I want that makes sense to me you know and I haven't yet given myself the time to sit down and design it, but I've, I've got in mind a more delicate, slightly more elaborate version of the sigil. So the, the shape of the sigil will be the same, but just the, the boldness of it will, will shift. And once I've given myself the time to do that, I'm actually pretty convinced that that is my first tattoo. Oh, hell yeah. Well, you're the one to get it, Nicola, if it's anybody. So talking of bodies, I also just wanted to give a shout out to the ways in which you draw women's bodies. You know, we talked a little about uh, the female gaze or the, the, we should say the straight female gaze in regards to the musculature and things that you show in your beefcakey men, which I do enjoy. <laughs> but I, I really just appreciate that, you know, Rowan in particular, she's not stick skinny. She's got some curve to her. And that's just something that I think is so valuable to see. So thank you for that. Oh, that's a pleasure. Yeah, look, she needs to be strong because she's a cop and she's got to have some muscle on her. But it's also important to me that she's 
got some shape as well. You know, Greg had in mind a sort of slightly more masculine body type for her. And I was just sort of like, no, that's one of your other characters. I can point that out to some of your other characters. But if she's a witch, I need her to be sort of really feminine. You know, her body language isn't feminine. I've given her a sort of quite blokey body language for the most part. Yeah, she's a tough cookie. Yeah, but she needs to have some softness and some curves as well for those artistic moments where I need to get her naked, you know, sky-clad doing something, which I don't know has necessarily happened too much yet. You know, there's some nudity in the first scene, in the first issue. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I don't know that I've actually got her gear off. Yeah, she's in her her bra and panties in the hostage situation. Yeah, yeah. But even then, I tried to make them sort of sportswear as opposed to yeah, you know, it wasn't like titillating lacy lingerie. No, no it, it, it's it's fantastic. And in talking of witches, I really think it's interesting how at first she presents as Wiccan. And yet you guys definitely acknowledge, and I imagine this is going to be unfolding even more as the series progresses, the different kinds of witches there are. You know, I I think some listeners might not realize that the religion of Wicca is very young. Mm. It was only created in the late 1940s by a man named Gerald Gardner with some heavy assists by Doreen Valiente, who was so cool um, and doesn't get nearly enough credit. Um, But it is such a new religion and one that's codified from some older stuff, but is essentially an invention. Well, yeah, like, I don't know that we've necessarily demonstrated exactly where she stands yet, but certainly Greg and I know where she stands. Like, she and Alex come from a very long, long, long tradition. Yes. And the two of them are two of seven lines around the world. They just happen to be around each other in this lifetime that are part of these long traditions. And it's easy in a modern day context to just a little bit hide behind Wicca. You know, to just sort of say, oh, we're Wiccan because it's shorthand for anyone who doesn't necessarily understand. Yep. And, you know, for them to explain their actual history is a little too mind-bending. And so even in that first scene where there is a full circle performing their, their ritual, Alex is leading the circle and Rowan being Rowan is reasonably passive in the circle. <laughs> I think that is them participating in the local Wiccan community But also whenever they have their primary high rituals that, you know, might require a little more energy, they're a little bit using, I think probably Alex started this coven and we've got a broad idea of almost everybody in that coven of what their involvement is. And some of them are there for the titillation of it. Some of them are there because they're experimenting Some of them are there because they're fringe dwellers anyway, and this is what speaks to them at the moment. Some of them are hardcore Wiccans. Like uh, in the circle to the left of Alex is a guy that's wearing a goat skull on his head. He's the guy that owns the esoteric books shop in issue five. Oh, right on. I didn't put that together. Right. I have to go back and look. Yeah, what I'm hoping is over the next block of issues, because we're just wrapping up an arc 
at the moment. I'm on my last couple of pages for an issue that comes out in the end of March. And our next block of issues will start coming out, I think, in July or August. And for that block, we're sort of starting to talk about, okay, this is the second act of our big story. I want to bring back some of those characters because we haven't gone back to that circle. And I think it's important to let the reader in a bit more on how different the rest of that circle is to Rowan and Alex, that the rest of that circle isn't in the same realm, really, as who and what Rowan and Alex are. You know, when when Rowan is actually asked point blank about whether or not she's Wiccan, she just says, yep, because it's easy for the person who's asking to understand. Yep. Where, you know, when we have a we have a flashback issue to Rowan's childhood and the awakening ritual that she goes through with her family and her true coven, which is the mothers, that is her real magical practice. And so the difference between those two circles is I think the difference between the mythology that Greg and I are creating out of our own imaginations and what really exists and is everyday practice. And I, I so appreciate that perspective too. It's something that to some degree I can relate to because, and I've said this on prior episodes, I don't actually consider myself Wiccan or call myself Wiccan right. for a, a host of reasons, but I do identify as a witch. And I, I love that, I mean, you know, she obviously has a bit of a different backstory than I do, <laughs> but I so appreciate the nod to that, that Wiccan is one way of being a witch, but there are so many others. And I just think it's really, really glorious. Yeah. And I don't know if you can talk about this or not, but I'm going to try. I, sure. I did read that Black Magic might be turning into a television show. Is that something that you're able to speak to? We are in an interesting place at the moment where the option was bought very early on and it has evolved and there are wheels turning. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I know I sound like I'm I'm sort of speaking around something, you know, big and that I'm not allowed to talk no, about. No, I totally but understand. But it's more along the lines of it's not actually set at mm-hmm. the moment. We're sort of in a, a no man's land of we're in the next stage, but we're yet to sign the thing moving forward. Yep. But there is quite a bit of forward momentum <laughs> And even if we were to sign it, even if blah, 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 almost every creator-owned comic series does have an option out and a development treatment happening. It does, you know, very few of them actually get made. So we do have our fingers crossed, but neither of us are holding our breaths. Okay. Well, I'm going to hold my breath. I'll do it. I would love it because (laughs) I love love which TV series. And any time I can get myself on some witch culture that speaks to me and you know I find a lot of witch stuff doesn't speak to me it, or it, it either slips a little too much into YA formula or, or or sort of you know Melrose Place melodrama or you know it's sort of 
I, I find it very odd the the things that finally sort of seep through into oh well this I quite like because of these reasons mm-hmm. as opposed to the bits and pieces that I'm just sort of like oh it's it's got so many of the right ingredients but it's just not speaking to me. Oh, um, woman, I feel you. <laughs> right. So I really hope it. You know that was a big part of the reason why I wanted to do this book in the first place because it was like you know I wish I had a book like this to read for myself. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully they make a TV series because if they make a TV series, because it's a very different format and because we are still in the process of creating our own story, they are given the bones of the story, but they then create their own thing. And I would love to sort of see where they go with it. Yeah. And that in itself could be pretty, pretty exciting. exciting. That, you know, that I can be a spectator on. Yeah. Well, I just love that approach of be the witch you want to see in the world or at least draw her. (laughs) Yeah, right? Gorgeous, gorgeous. Well, listen, Nicola, I know you've got your pages to get back to, so I won't keep you much longer. But quickly, where can people find more black magic? Well, if you go into your local comic book store, there are still some single issues coming out for the current arc that we're in but there's also the first trade should be on shelves now and the second trade is due out in the stores in may i believe probably end of may and you can follow me on social media at nicola scott art on twitter and instagram and we've also got a black magic merch instagram account where we're sort of developing a bunch of sigil stamped merchandise and witch paraphernalia that will be on sale shortly. But if you follow us, then you'll you'll find out when it's available. Fantastic. I think my wallet just started weeping, both in agony and joy. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Nicola, I, I want to be mindful that you have more pages to draw and more beauty to manifest into the world and much more magic so I'm gonna wrap things up with you though I could just talk to you for days so you know maybe we'll do this again sometime yeah please I can't wait you know next time I come through uh, the east coast I've got to catch up right on any 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 time and once again thank you so much for just being a real keeper of the flame of the divine feminine i mean between wonder woman black magic we didn't even get to birds of prey and secret six i mean you are just such a badass and using your power for such good so i thank you for that nicholas scott and thank you so much that's it for the show Thank you again to Nicola Scott for taking the time to Skype in from Down Under and for just existing. How about that? Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Please email me at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com and you might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Pam Grossman. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Chiquita Pascal, Matt Freeman, and David Del Grasso. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us lots of sparkly stars. It makes a big, 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 big difference. 
You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have an iPhone, I really think you'd love my witch emoji for iMessage. You can fill your texts with witches, spellcraft objects, and magical symbols in a variety of skin tones, genders, and colors. Just search for Witch Emoji, all one word, in the App Store, or go to witchemoji.com. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs>